0: Well, as promised, um, we are—we've wrapped up our, our series in Jonah, and kind of had a one-off sermon last week, and picking up with the Psalms uh, this Sunday. Uh, so here's kind of how the next uh, eight weeks are going to look. We're going to—we're um, going to pick um, different kinds of Psalms to study every week, and I'm sure you already know this to a degree, but there's many different kinds of of Psalms. or Psalms of Lament their psalms of praise. There's imprecatory psalms, which are that's like a fancy theological word for psalms um, when a believer is angry at somebody else and needs a way to verbalize that. Um, and so, what I'm going to do over the next eight weeks is pick one of each, so we just kind of get like a survey, different taste of all the different kind of psalms. Um, for thousands of years, uh, the psalms have been the go-to book of the Bible for believers. If you were to ask uh, the church or a follower of Christ, what is your favorite book of the Bible? Most, if, um, if not all, would say, you know, the, the Psalms. And it's not because it's just right smack dab in the middle of the Bible. It's not just because uh, it's one of the largest books of the Bible. Um, there's a number of reasons why we like the Psalms so much. Um, but one in particular is, you know, when we read the Psalms and we read Psalms of, of praise We go, you know, I didn't know um, that that's how believers could or should engage with God. Um, Or if we're sad and we read a psalm of lament, we say, oh, you know, I I didn't know I could say that to God. Um, I didn't know I could um, engage with God in that way to share my grief. Um, Or if if there's psalms of wisdom, you know, gosh, you know, I I didn't know… this about God, or I didn't know that about me, or this about his kingdom and his economy. Um, It's always been a favorite of the church um, because we read it and we go, "Um, I didn't know that, and I didn't know that there are other believers in the history of the church that think or feel or experience the world the same way I do. Uh, It's very sympathetic uh, in that way. It's the, uh, the psalm book of Israel, Um, So even as we're reading these psalms, uh, remember that in the original context, these were sung. These were put to tunes. And um, the one we're looking at this morning is Psalm 1. It's called uh, the faithful doorkeeper to the psalms. And in some manuscripts, what that means is actually the first psalm is Psalm 3. Uh, And some writers have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 kind of as like the prologue to the psalms and they don't give them numbers uh, because they actually serve as like the faithful doorkeeper. What exactly does that mean? I hope to show us uh, this morning. Um, So, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Again, we're reading from Psalm chapter 1. It's a short one, verses 1 through 6. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked shall perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A couple years back in 2016, the highly anticipated DC comic movie, uh, Batman vs Superman uh, was coming out. And a lot of people were excited. I was excited in a different way. Um, a lot of the music I like to listen to when I'm reading or writing sermons uh, are movie soundtracks. And one of my favorite movie soundtrack composers, his name is Hans Zimmer, he was doing the music for this film. So not only was I interested to see the movie, I really wanted to hear uh, the music behind it. And, you know, Hans Zimmer is is not just a really good composer. You know, he doesn't just write really catchy tunes. Um, He did the music for Um, Gladiator, he's done the music for all the Batman movies. If you've watched Planet Earth on the BBC on Netflix, he's done all the music uh, behind Planet Earth. Um, He doesn't write just good music. He's very, very creative in how he writes his music. And let me give you an example. So something that composers will do, a lot of composers will do in a movie, is they will write particular themes or particular melodies for the individual characters in a movie, right? So they did this in Star Wars, they do this in all the superhero movies. Each character will kind of have its own theme. So Hans Zimmer wrote a theme for Superman. It was triumphant, it was energetic, it was melodic. Um, It sounded great, it had a great melody uh, to it. But we all know that Superman has an arch nemesis and he's the bad guy, Lex Luthor and Hans Zimmer wrote a theme for him, but it wasn't an entirely new theme. Here's what he did, he took, the, he took the theme from Superman that he'd already written and he reversed it, distorted it, put it in a minor key, perverted it in a way, um, and made that the theme for Lex Luthor. And if you, if you listen to both and if you pay attention, you can see how one was derived from the other and I really liked this um, about his creativity, because what he was trying to do musically was contrast these two characters. One was good, one was bad. This tune was, was, was triumphant, um, was, was positive, was, was energetic. This one was in minor keys. This one was heavily produced. Um, this one sounded slightly off, but it was derived from this one. Um, we're looking at a song this morning. Again, this was first originally a song that Israel would sing with each other in corporate worship together. And what the psalmist is, is doing here is, is very similar to what Hans Zimmer was doing in his soundtrack. He's comparing two people, um, except in this case, in the psalm, he's not doing it musically, he's not doing it with tunes, he's not doing it with melodies, he's doing it with words and with parables. Um, he's gonna show a distinction, not between Superman and Lex Luthor, he's showing the distinction between the wise and the wicked, the righteous, and the rebel, uh, the godly, and the ungodly. We're going to hear a lot of that language, those descriptors uh, for these two kinds of people uh, in this Psalm. So I'm going to use those uh, interchangeably. So, I going to look at three things in this passage this morning as it relates to these two people uh, the blessed path, and these, are, these, these points are printed for you in your bulletin. The blessed path, the fork in the path, and then the ends of the paths, the blessed path, the fork in the path, and then the ends of the paths. Well, first, the blessed path. I look back at verse 1. Notice this is the first line of the first song uh, of, the, of, of the, the book of Psalms. Um, and notice where it starts. Notice how it begins. The psalmist says, "'Blessed is the man.'" blessed is the man. If you were to translate this a bit more literally, you could translate it this way, oh, the happiness of the man. Oh, the happiness. Now, again, imagine you're Israel, and you're singing this, and you're singing this often. This is one of your favorites. This is one of the go-tos. Let's go back to Psalm 1. You're singing this. You're memorizing this. What, What are you being instructed as you're singing this song together? And here's what I want us to want us not to miss because we use this word blessed so much in the church. It's, it's one of those words that's kind of lost its punch. What does it mean to be blessed? Um, think about it this way, and, and I've learned this from, from one writer. He said, we've got a lot of room in our worldview for pain, for suffering, uh, for trials, for discomfort, We don't need to argue or convince people that that's going to happen. We would all agree without arguing that we have room in our worldview for for suffering and for trials and for difficulty. But what this writer says about this psalm is, is, but at the same time, do you have room in your worldview for joy, for bliss, for happiness, for ecstasy? These are vital and very, very important parts of the Christian worldview. Do you have room in your theological catalog For happiness. God intends for us to be joyful and happy people. This is the first word out of the Psalms. Oh, the happiness of the man. Blessed is the man. Joyful. Happy is the person. He's concerned about our happiness. Um, The next two points uh, are helpful. First, how not defined this happiness, and then how to find it. So the second part of verse 1, how not to find happiness. Do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the th- seat of scoffers. You might ask, okay, from this passage, who are, um, who are the wicked? Who are these sinners? Who are these scoffers? And we kind of need the rest of the Scriptures to kind of help us figure out who these, these people truly are. And here's what uh, a couple writers have said. Here's their definition, and it's very helpful. The wicked, the scoffer, uh, are those who take what is holy and good and make those things that are holy and good into objects of ridicule. Does that make sense? Uh, the wicked and the scoffer takes what is good and what is holy and makes those things... The object of ridicule. You've been there before, right? You're trying to get serious about the Sabbath, and people look at you sideways like, bless your heart. Who are you trying to impress, right? Uh, Another writer puts it this way. uh, The wicked and the scoffer is, is the defiant and the cynical free thinkers that assume that wisdom comes from outside of God, and he illustrates it this way. You know, imagine you're walking on a beach and you find a fish flopping on the shoreline and the fish can talk and the fish says, you know, that water doesn't rule or define me. I can live outside of the water and I'm going to show you, I can live outside of the water. You'd pass by and if the fish could talk to you, your response would be one of, of, of laughter, right? Because we know by design and by created order, a fish is only free if He's where He's designed to be, which is in the water. And the scoffer and the wicked are those who are living outside of the created order, who are flopping on the beach saying, I can do things differently. Wisdom doesn't come from God. It comes from me. And they scoff the people in the water while flopping around on the shoreline. What's more, he calls uh, these people sinners in that third line. It says, nor stands in the way of sinners. What we can't see here in the English is, is the tense of that word. It's intensive uh, in its form, which means, you know, this, this person who sins is not someone who just accidentally makes a mistake or, or stumbles, you know, ignorantly or one time. You know, a, a sinner in the intensive form is someone who makes a habit out of a rebellious lifestyle. They're not ignorant, they're informed. They're doing what they are doing. they're scoffing. They're living in wickedness intentionally, knowingly. They're making a habit and a lifestyle out of it. And here's what's, here's what's interesting about this point, is, is it's ironic. And, and tell me if you feel this way: uh, to be righteous and to not stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. Um, what the Lord is saying here is, is that's to lead the best life. Well, what that means for you practically is, is that it means you're not going to cut corners. You're not going to cheat. You're going to do the right thing, even if it means suffering ridicule. And, and sometimes we go, that doesn't feel like happiness. That doesn't feel like being blessed. And then the opposite, we see the wicked. And, and Jeremiah asks this, this poignant question, and I'm thankful for it that it's in the Scriptures. He says, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? Right? Because when the wicked cut corners, they get a little extra cash. When they cut corners, they get the promotion that you deserved. When they cut corners, they get more things than you get in this life. That, their life looks blessed. Do you see that irony? Do you feel that irony? If I'm going to be righteous, if, if, if I'm going to be good, if I'm going to delight in the law, I don't feel blessed all the time. But when I look at it, all the rebellious people who, who don't give a royal rip about your law, They feel blessed. We'll come back to that point in just a minute. That's how not to find it, Um, the happiness, uh, the blessedness of this life. But here's how you do. The psalmist puts it positively now. Verse 2, he says, "...but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night." Let's think about it this way. Imagine you are taking up a new hobby And this is not just, like, a new trend, you know, something you just kind of want to poke at and and see if you're good at. You're going all in on this new hobby. So what that means is is you're watching all the how-to videos on YouTube. That means you're going to the store and you're buying everything you need to actually perform this hobby. When it comes to your calendar, you're actually carving out time um, to give yourself the freedom to engage in this new hobby that you love, that you desire, that you delight in. In other words, if people were to look at your calendar or your credit card bill or your your browser history, they would go, okay, you're taking this very seriously. You love whatever this new hobby is that you're doing. You are truly delighting in it. And that same verb, delight, is here in this passage. That's how we're supposed to treat. That's how we're supposed to engage with the law of God. We're supposed to delight in it. Uh, what does delight mean? Delight is, is to study something for the purpose of doing it. Delight is not outward conformity, that's duty. Duty is outward conformity. Delight is doing something from the heart, doing something out of zeal, doing something out of a response. That is true delight. Uh, but here's the truth. <laughs> here's the truth about that point. Um... Do you delight in God's law? Uh, do you love it like you love some of your hobbies? Um, I think it's in here in this passage because the Lord knows we don't. If you don't delight in God's law, um, it's okay in one sense because that's not how we show up. We don't show up with this, this, this delight for it on our insides. Um, it's something that has to grow and be procured in us. Um, but we can change. So, on one hand, it's, it's okay if you're here this morning and you're saying, "Ah, uh, if, if I'm being truly honest, I do not delight in God's law." Uh, but God's made provision for that. One of my Hebrew professors in, in seminary used to say this over and over, and it's—I I never forgot. It. It's incredibly wise. He said, "In the Christian life, the discipline precedes the appetite. The discipline." always precedes the appetite. In other words, if you find yourself in a position where when you read like Psalm 1 and if you're reading it diagnostically and you go, wait a minute, that's not me. That's the path to happiness, but that's not me. I don't delight in God's law the way I ought to or the way I should or the way that's described here in Psalm 1. What do I do? The discipline precedes the appetite. Do this. Try this. For 21 days straight, this is not legalism, this is not moralism, it's to get up and the first thing you do in the morning is read a chapter of the Bible and, and pick a psalm or pick a gospel, pick a book, but read just one chapter and do it every day for three weeks. And here's what typically happens uh, with people who discipline themselves in that way. By day 20, by day 21, it stops becoming something that you're supposed to do and actually when you wake up, you unbeknownst to yourself sometimes you go i kind of want to do this now now the appetite is starting to show up now now i want to read now i want to study maybe not just one but maybe two the discipline precedes the appetite that make sense saturate yourself with the word right now if you don't delight in the law that's okay god's made provision for it but discipline yourself Give yourself three weeks. watch what happens. watch what it does to your affections. watch how your appetite changes and grows and increases for it. you start to want to want it. it's a good thing um, to delight in the law of God. This is the blessed path. Uh, well what happens when you come to that fork in the path? What happens if you choose the way of the wicked? what happens if you choose the way of the wise? Well, the psalmist answers that question, jumping into point two. Uh, First, the way of the wise. What does his his life look like? Uh, Verse three. Here's where we get the metaphor, and the psalmist uses uh, the metaphor of a tree. He says he's like a tree planted by streams of water. Again, what we can't see in the English here is um, this word planted um, is actually better translated as transplanted. Uh, in other words, this tree uh, uh, grew, uh, its original home was someplace else, but now it has been uprooted, moved, and placed by this, this irrigation channel. It's been moved intentionally. Uh, it's a deliberate move to gain access to that which it needs for life and health and vibrancy. You know, being wise means moving yourself and putting yourself in a position um, to where you can receive the most benefit from life. And so in the, in the wise person's path, in the Christian's life, um, that living water is the Word of God. And it's a strategic, deliberate, intentional move to place yourself closer to it, transplanting yourself in it, being planted. second line says this, that it yields fruit in its season. So this is not just any ordinary tree. What we found is that this is a fruit tree. This is a tree that by design is meant to bear fruit. Um, This is the result of being watered. It's not the reward of being watered. This is just the result that if you're a fruit tree and you're by streams of living water, what is going to happen is is you're going to bear fruit. Jesus said something very similar to this in the Gospel of John. Do you remember? Very popular verse. He said, I'm the vine, you are the branches, abide in me. And he who abides in me might bear a fruit or two if you really try hard enough. If you really push yourself, believer, you'll bear some fruit. That's not the way he says it. If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. And in the same way, the psalmist is is reminding us of of Jesus' teaching. He's saying, if you're planted by streams of living water, it's impossible for you not to bear good fruit. Did you hear that? If you are planted by streams of living water, if you've been transplanted into the Word of God, what is going to happen by default, almost instinctually, almost without even trying, is you are going to bear fruit. Because that's what you were designed to do. You were designed for the water, you weren't designed for the shoreline. That's where you thrive that is what being human at, at its core level looks and feels like. It's being immersed in the Word of God, so much so that you are bearing fruit, fruit that you don't even know, and fruit that you can't even see. It happens naturally. It's, it's the natural result. He goes on and says, um, this tree doesn't even just bear fruit, but its leaf will not wither. And if you've ever been close to the equator, or if you've ever been in the eastern sun, you know how intense and you know uh, how much of a struggle and how oppressive uh, that heat and that sun can be. And what the psalmist here is saying is that if you're planted in the right spot and if you're bearing fruit, even under the scorching eastern sun, not only will you be fruitful, but you'll be stable you'll endure. Whatever oppresses you, whatever confronts you, uh, whatever is trying to sap your energy and your life away, it, it will have no effect on you. You'll endure. You won't go into shock, as some plants, you know, do in tremendous heat. You'll bear fruit. You'll thrive. You'll be lush. The sun can't touch you. This is the path of the wise. This is the blessed path. The same can't be said for the way of the wicked. Look at verse 4. Oppositely, he says, the wicked are not so, but they are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Uh, Again, this is written in an agricultural community, and so this is an agricultural metaphor. Let's remind ourselves what the chaff is. Imagine you have just… you're an Israelite, and you've just harvested corn, and you've got all of these kernels in a very, very large basket… If you were a, an Israelite, you would ascend a hill, and typically on a very windy or blustery day, and in this basket, you have all these kernels of corn. And what you'd do on the top of the hill is you'd kind of sift and, and shake this corn um, and, and cause it to bump up against each other. And what that's going to do is it's going to crack that outer shell of, of, of the kernel. Um, sometimes when you eat popcorn, you get that, uh, that chaff in between your teeth. You know what I'm talking about? It's It's translucent that shell that kind of goes around the uh, the kernel. And when they butt butt up against each other, they begin to crack and break off. And so now what you're starting to see in the basket are the kernels of corn and then all these pieces of of, of shell and and of chaff. And then once those have been loosened uh, and separated from the kernels, the Israelite would throw the kernels up into the air and the wind would take the chaff and blow the chaff away. It would carry it away because it's weightless. It's, 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 it has no weight to it whatsoever. But the kernels, which are, which are dense and which are heavy, would fall back down into the basket. So what you've just done with little effort is you've separated the chaff from that which is good, that which you'll, you'll ground into meal or ground into bread or replant. Um, and, and the psalmist here compares the wicked to chaff. And what it does is it not only describes the wicked's character but it describes also uh, the wicked's fate. Chaff is rootless. Chaff is fruitless. Chaff is useless. And a stiff wind will carry it away. It'll carry it out of sight. That is the fate of the wicked. But well, where do these paths eventually end? What's the end of the wicked path? Last point. We've already hinted at it. In the metaphor of the chaff, it kind of hints at the ends of the wicked, but look at what verse 5 says. He says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners will not stand in the congregation of the righteous. Um, That's kind of a play on words. Look back at verse 1. Look at the third line. Notice how the psalmist describes um, the wicked in this life. There are people who stand. And what he's, what he's illustrating here is you know, a, a defiance, a standing in defiance and rebellion against God. That I'm going to go in, all in on this life. That my happiness comes from my ability to cut corners, to find joy in unrighteous ways, to mock what is holy, to mock what is, what is good. The psalmist is saying here that, yes, in this life, that person may stand. But in the life that is to come, the life that is eternal, there is no standing. They won't stand in the congregation of the righteous. They won't stand among believers. They're like chaff. They'll be driven away. The opposite is true for the wise. What's the end of the wise path? The Lord says in verse six, "For the Lord knows the way of the righteous." And I don't know what you hear or assume when you hear that word "know." Now, what I don't want you to assume is that God here is saying that He's familiar with you, um, that he, he He knows of you like you know of a fact or a, an idea, that He's aware of you. When this this verb "yada" appears in the Hebrew, um, this is a very very intimate. Term. Um, In the Gospels, uh, Joseph knew not his wife, Mary, until after Jesus was born. In the first marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, um, Adam knew his wife, Eve. Um, To be known by God is at the same time to find and to receive a committed, a secure, an eternal knowing of Him. He's not aware of you. That's a great comfort for the Christian to hear. The Lord knows you. He's eternally committed to you. It's intimate language. In a loving and committed way, He's with you. Meaning that in this life, if, if we choose the righteous path, And if it means we get overlooked, if it means we get ridiculed, if it means we make less money, what is the believer's hope? Is that this life is not all that there is. We act like it sometimes. This life is the temporary life. This one has an expiration date. It's got a short shelf life. Ecclesiastes says this life is a vapor compared to the life that is to come, which is eternal. And so Christians are bankers in that way. We say, yeah, we'll suffer some discomfort now. Maybe we don't make as much money as we'd hoped. We won't make as much money as the wicked. But we're already rich. We're already rich in in promises um, because Christ, who is the heir of all things, unites us with himself. And if he's the heir of all things, we become heirs of all things too. Let me close with uh, three things uh, this morning. The first is this, Uh, do not look at at the law like it's a token. Now think Chuck E. Cheese with me for a minute. Chuck E., remember that place where you go and you spend money and you play whack-a-mole and skee-ball and what do you get out of a machine? You get a token and you trade those tokens in for goods or for prizes. And um, our instinct wants to treat the law like a token and wants to look at the law as a bartering tool. God, let me do these things, and then let me hand them to you, and then in return, give me eternal life. That is not one of the purposes, that is not one of the uses of the law of God. That's not what it's supposed to do. That's a misuse of it. That's an unwise use of it. Uh, Instead, the law is supposed to be a hammer. A hammer. And what a hammer does to glass is it it's shatters. It's destructive. It's undoing. What the law is supposed to do to us is like a hammer um, to a glass sculpture. It's supposed to decimate it. And that's one of its uses. And, and so maybe you felt this way as you read this psalm. We've already hinted at it. Do you, do you delight perfectly in the law of God? I don't. Have you been able to protect yourself and keep yourself from the ways of the wicked purely from the heart not in the letter of the law but in the spirit of the law have you done that perfectly if you're reading this honestly and humbly you'd go i mean we're halfway through verse 1 and i'm done i haven't done that i can't do that have i planted myself by streams of living water have i bathed myself in the word of god it's, so it's the first thing off my tongue Have I borne perfect and good fruit? Have I endured under scorn and shame, under persecution, under the sun? No, I haven't. And if you'll let it, Psalm 1 needs to be a hammer to us. It needs to undo us. We need to be decimated morally and spiritually in that way. We need that rug to be yanked out from underneath us. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Um, There is a guy who perfectly embodied Psalm 1, who not just by letter, but by spirit bathed himself in the Word of God from a very young age, even told his parents, did you not know that I would be in my father's house, meaning that's where I was born to be, was in fellowship with my father, in his Word, studying it, and when tempted, what was the first thing off of Jesus' tongue? Scripture. The word of God. Did he endure? Did he suffer greatly under that Roman and Jewish son? Absolutely. He endured perfectly. If Jesus were a Boy Scout, he'd be the only one who could, who could successfully and rightly earn the Psalm 1 badge. He's the only one who could earn it. He's the only one in, who, who has it. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus, in his compassion, he looks at our badgeless sashes and he says, I will give you my Psalm 1 badge. I will give it to you. It has to be received, it has to be rested in. It means you get credit for something that somebody else did. It's not something you did, but it's a gift. So when the Father looks at you and He looks at your sash, He sees sees that white badge with Psalm 1 on it and He goes, You're perfect. But that perfection came from somewhere else. That perfection was alien to you. It was given to you by Christ. So when the Father looks at you, He doesn't see the old you. He sees the new Psalm 1 you that Christ provided you. So here's what that means then for the believer. If that's what you have, if that's what you've done, if you've rested, received that work of Christ on your behalf, if the law has already been a hammer to you first, now the law is a map. The law doesn't become obsolete. It doesn't become unnecessary. Absolutely not. It becomes a map. And here's what I mean by that. Recently, um, a realtor friend of ours did a huge kindness for my parents, and my parents wanted to do something in response, wanted to give him a gift, because it wasn't something, you know, we, we could be charged for, and so because they were grateful, and because they recognized, you know, the effort that he put out for our family, they wanted to do something in return for him, so they put me on the job, and so I contacted this realtor's wife, and I just said, hey, Uh, What does this guy like to do in his free time, in his spare time? What are his hobbies? What does he enjoy? What kind of food does he like? What kind of things does he like to go to? Uh, And in our conversation, you know, got a couple hints, got him a gift card to a place we knew he'd appreciate it, and um, put it in an envelope with a thank-you letter and gave it to him. Um, A map shows you where to go, what to do, the path you are to take. The law now to people who are in Christ, again, the law is not useless anymore. What it is, it's a way to say thank you. It's a way to respond to God now in ways that he appreciates, in ways that he has designed. To say yes to the law, to obey the law, is a way of saying thank you to God for his grace and his mercy in your life. It's now a response. That's what gifts do. Gifts attack the heart. And once you have received that great gift of salvation from Christ, something from outside of you, worked inside of you, it attacks your heart, it attacks your affections. You do what normal people do when you've been given a great gift. You want to respond. You want to say thank you. How do we say thank you to God? Look at the law. And here's the great thing. If that gospel really sinks in, if if that gets into the marrow of your soul, you you don't have to try to do it. You want to do it. It's almost instinctual. It's almost reactive. All of the duty is gone. All the obligation out, out of it is gone. And now it's joy. Now it's delight. Now it's, I want to honor you because you are worthy. I want to obey you because you are so gracious and you are so kind. That's the difference between works and good works is the motivation. It's the heart. Gifts attack the heart of the believer. And the believer in return responds with joyful and delightful obedience. May that be said of us. Let's pray. Our great Father, make us wise. Make us skilled in the art of, of godly living. Um, it's so easy to be temporal and to be short sighted in this life, uh, to seek the happiness and the blessing of this life at great loss and forfeiture in the life to come. Make us courageous, spirit able, and animate us to say yes to godliness and no to ungodliness. Christ, thank you for uh, being a perfect representation of the law. Thank you for giving us your goodness. Conform us into your image, we pray, and we ask in the name of Christ alone. Amen.